Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 10 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, Travis and I invited a very special guest onto the podcast to talk with us about the connection between strength and pain. Our guest's name is Adam Meekins, and we'll thoroughly introduce him to you in just a minute. But just know that Travis and I have both followed and hugely appreciated Adam and his work for years, and we were so honored to get to talk to him on the podcast today. We really think you'll get a lot out of this conversation and the many eye-opening insights that Adam shares with us. Some of the many topics we discuss in this episode are, what is strength? And what parameters need to be met in order for an activity to be strengthening? If someone adds strength work into their movement practice and they end up feeling better in their body, why do they feel better? Do weak muscles cause pain? Are tight muscles simply weak and is the solution always to strengthen them? What's the relationship between muscle imbalances, poor posture, and pain? Is regional interdependence a well-supported explanation for why people have pain? And we'll define that term regional interdependence just in case it's new to you. Do physical therapists and other rehab professionals tend to overcomplicate their approach to the human body and movement? And for that matter, do yoga teachers as well? What are some of the limitations of using strength training to treat people in pain? And we cover much more as well. We really think you'll enjoy this discussion and we'll be able to apply a ton of these insights right into your approach to yoga, movement, and fitness. If you happen to be a member on my website, JennyRawlings.com, just know that you can also actually watch the video version of this podcast as a bonus feature of your membership. So if you prefer to listen via audio, that's great. And you can just listen right here. But if you'd like to actually see Travis, Adam, and I talk face-to-face as we have this conversation, feel free to do so over on my website. And now without further ado, here's our episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 10th episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, we're going to be talking all about the benefits of strength relative to pain. So what do we know about the benefits? When do we sometimes maybe take these things too far and think of strength as a cure-all for pain? And what are some of the questions that we still have surrounding the relationship between strength and pain? What do we still need to learn more about? So to help us talk about this topic, we have invited a very special guest, and this guest is Adam Meekins. One of the reasons that we asked Adam to on this episode with us is that he is a huge proponent of pain or sorry he's a huge proponent of strength not a huge proponent of pain but he talks about <laughs> pain uh and he is uh he actually has a motto it says you can't go wrong getting strong 
So Adam is a physiotherapist, or as we refer to it, a physical therapist in the U.S. He's a sports scientist, a strength and conditioning coach, working in the NHS, National Health Service, and private practice in the United Kingdom. He has a popular shoulder course called The Painful Shoulder, Complex Does Not Equal Complicated. And he is widely recognized for calling out BS in the physio and movement worlds. And from what I have seen, very influential, especially for up-and-comers in the rehab world, often cite him as one of their top influences. And he is he's really out there putting out great information on social media, and we think he's awesome. So welcome, Adam, to the podcast. Wow. Thank you very much for that glowing introduction. I feel quite embarrassed now. I've got a little bit of a rosy glow to my teeth cheeks so thank you very much for that travis and jenny it's uh it's a privilege to be here thanks for inviting me on to talk all things in around pain and strength and uh, rehabilitation looking forward to it yeah we're so happy to have you here thank you adam we thought that we might just start off by just establishing like a base uh definition for the term that we're throwing around here today which is strength would you be able to just define for us before we get into it too much like what what does strength mean Ooh, great question. Uh, and one that's probably got about 33 different answers based on who you talk to. So probably a, a quick, simple way to create an argument between physios and strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers is to ask that question, because I'm sure you're going to get lots of disagreement. <laughs> so for me, I think, you know, from a, 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 a term strength, it basically means a force output. So I think we are we're discussing when we say somebody has strength or they are looking to assess their strength, we're looking to assess their ability to produce force. Uh, and that ability to produce force has physiological um, factors, but also psychological factors as well, which I think sometimes is not well recognized. So we definitely know that, you know, muscle power uh, muscle size and uh, and other physiological parameters contribute to the development of force output strength but so do other factors as well so you know the willingness to do it is also another factor we have to consider the psychological factors the fear the pain as well these all sometimes again influence somebody's strength but yeah it's a great question so for me strength basically is somebody's ability to produce force Thank you. That's such an excellent and thorough answer. And it's it's good for us to realize it's not just about, there's not just um, a factor of, of how much force a muscle can produce, but it's influenced by other factors as well. And psychology, that's a huge one to point out. Would you say that, so if that's strength, would you say that strengthening would be uh, increasing one's ability to produce force by, by any number of mechanisms? Yeah. So again, by definition, you know, we, we use the term strengthening exercises to imply that we are trying to produce somebody to be able to produce more force. But what we often find, particularly in some rehab, in fact, a lot of the rehab is that when we use this term strengthening exercise, we don't actually see changes in force output. People feel better from doing it, but they don't actually see changes in their force output. So again, I think this term strengthening exercises in some situations would be better off described as resistance exercises. We're using resistance uh, in the form of an activity or a task or a movement 
but it doesn't necessarily change their ability to produce force. So I think, yeah, we, we use these terms interchangeably, uh, but I, mm-hmm. I try to determine the difference. Is, is my goal here to try and increase force? Then I will try to say this is a strengthening exercise of which I think certain parameters have to be met or achieved to try and achieve that. But then there's other times where we're using resistance exercises, which are sometimes considered to be strengthening exercises, where we're using the same looking type of exercises, but we're not actually thinking or needing to try and improve somebody's force output their strength and again it may be yeah a little bit of semantics i think a little bit around uh, it sometimes but i think it's important if you're you're being intentional about it and saying well if we're doing strength training then we're meeting certain parameters in terms of it being hard and it you know going to a certain level of exertion but you could use the same exercise and it be Mm -hmm. lighter or you could be not going into as much effort and so it's what whatever outcome we're trying to get at in in that moment or over that over the term of using that can vary which sort of way you're referring to it with someone absolutely and i, I think the key parameter there with defining what's the difference between a strength and exercises and a resistance-based exercise would be the intensity uh, it would be mm-hmm. the perceived effort rate in there that normally is is the factor that when you look at the research seems to be the one that has uh, the more importance when it comes to trying to get people stronger. It's not so much about the loads that we're using. It's not so much even about the sets and the rep ranges. It has tend to be the intensity or the perception of intensity is the thing that does or doesn't actually change people's strength. So I think that's the factor that needs to be looked at the most. Uh, when trying to determine is this a strengthening exercise and if I'm being honest I think that's the one factor that a lot of especially rehab professionals don't actually look at we get very focused on the sets and the reps and the frequency and how many times you need to do it we don't actually (laughs) tend to focus too much on the intensity perception of the exercise which I think is the far more important variable and that's also that's an education process too because some people especially people who are newer to it resistance or strength training people who are in pain their perception of hard isn't it's not i don't want to say wrong but it's it's different Mm -hmm. (laughs) they they might feel something is hard where you say that's a five pound dumbbell that couldn't that objectively couldn't feel hard but their their levels are all Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Effort is dependent. Yeah, per- the perception of intensity is, you know, governed by so many different variables based on the individual circumstances, you know, and everything else that's going on around it. Um, and again, a little bit of that old school bro science is, you know, you can't get strong if you don't start using heavy weights. You've got to have heavy loads to get strong. We know that's not true at all. Uh, we know that you can create muscle hypertrophy and strength gains with with all the variations of load, it is really, it's the intensity that of that mm-hmm. load that's more, far more important. Yeah. So you could use a lighter load, but just do more reps to get yourself like at the end of that set. If you feel that intensity toward the end, then you're there and it's a lighter load, but it's, that's why the intensity is the factor that like, it has Absolutely. to be hard at some point. Yeah, we, we do see that sort of, you know, zone of creating adaptation does feel challenging, does feel hard, does feel intense. And that seems to be the, the say, the factor that we see most often commonly improves strength or force output. 
is when the intensity is at a certain specific level. But again, it's still a bit of a grey area and it's something that I still struggle with. Was that, well, well, how much or how high does that intensity have to be to actually still see changes right. in, in strength? And again, it's variable based, I think, on individual factors. So, you know, I think we see novices and people that haven't had much experience or exposure to resistance training. We see that they can perhaps create quite a lot of strength adaptations without actually having to push that hard into intensity. Yet somebody who's been exposed to intense exercises and resistance-based exercises for a bit longer probably has to push harder into intensity to get those same adaptations. So again, there's other confounders and variables there, which means that, again, when it comes to prescribing and dosing exercises, there is no one-size-fits-all approach. This three right. times 10 or five <laughs> times five, you know, parameters that I often see being promoted as the best to use it's just not that simple. Just so that the, simple. the answer is to take like two years off and just do nothing. So then when you go back <laughs> to it, you can get a lot of adaptation. Right? Well, it's funny you should say this because when I see people a lot in my role as a rehab professional, healthcare professional, and I am trying to promote the, the benefits of resistance-based, strength-based training, and I'm dealing with somebody who's never done it in their life, you know, and they're really fearful and they're really anxious and they're really worried. I'm like trying to put all the positives on. I'm saying... Look, you've got so much potential for adaptation here. You do not realize right. the potential you have of creating changes really quickly and potentially quite easily because you've never been exposed to this stuff. Yes, where somebody that has been training for, you know, 10 or 15 years, it's a lot harder for them to get the same adaptations than a novice. So I use this as a positive for this novice person that. that's I never had that, it. Yeah. And try and say to just the potential in front of you is just awesome, and let's 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 explore it. Let's use it to our advantage because you your body is just going to lap up all this you know stimulus that it's never had before, and it's going to create all these positive adaptations that is just say going to open a whole new world of opportunities for you. So I actually use that as a positive rather than a negative for novices, and say That's to them, amazing. you know, it's, it's yeah, it's really it's a really nice useful strategy I find to try and get them to buy into engaging with resistance exercises to say to him you've got this option to yeah go go into places that you know you've never been before that's something that i wanted to ask like do you encounter so obviously there are a lot of people who you see who've never done it before do you encounter resistance to resistance exercise <laughs> and when you yeah. do is it something that you try to reframe so instead of we're doing squats we're doing sit to stand it you know or and is it sometimes so that one example, I guess, would be, okay, we're going to try to work around this by changing how we're referring to it or changing your conception of it. And the other thing would be, are there just sometimes people who say, I don't want to do it? And then what would you do? Yeah, great questions. And again, yes, there is a lot of resistance to resistance-based exercises <laughs> based on society and cultural factors, but also because of a lot of negative misinformation, misguided mm -hmm. information about there about the risk and the dangers and the harms Gosh. that can come from resistance-based exercises. You know, there's this big cultural push that if you do these resistance-based exercises, the risk of injury is so high compared to doing non-resistance-based injuries. And again, I tried to flip that around. And sometimes I discuss the research about, you know, the thousands of hours of exposure and the risks of injuries in those thousands of hours. So normally when we talk about injury risk, we look at thousands of hours of exposure. 
and we normally get a figure to see how many, you know, what high risk potential there is of a thousand hours of exposure of this particular task. What are the chances of you having an injury? And resistance-based training, strength-based training, traditionally, consistently, always goes to the bottom of the list when you look at the amount of injuries per thousand hours of, say, doing running, uh, cycling, swimming, um, all these other tasks and exercises, even, you know, things like probably yoga and um, other exercises, <laughs> tennis, football soccer. games, rugby games, soccer, all these sort of tasks. These all have far, far higher injury risk profiles compared to resistance and strength training. So I try to help people understand that a little bit, reframe that a little bit. And then the other thing that you mentioned there, Travis, yeah, absolutely. It's a case of reframing what resistance-based exercises is. It's not gym culture. It's not mm-hmm. just about, you know, bros. in. I absolutely, Jenny, they always go around thinking, you know, if I'm doing resistance exercises, I'm going to have to go into a sweaty, smelly gym with guys on steroids, you know, with their little string vests on, yeah, doing the old double swan poses in front of the mirrors again. And I totally get that puts me off. And I'm the guy normally doing the double swan poses in front of the mirrors. (laughs) So I I understand gym culture absolutely Mm -hmm. puts a load of people off but i tried to reframe that you know resistance-based exercises isn't just gym culture it's not done with iron plates in machines in gyms right. with music blaring you can do it you in so it many other ways yeah like yeah like you guys have been trying to you know incorporate and and reframing it as well you know i had the classic one i had not so long ago i had a uh, a lady that was struggling with back pain who I wanted to use resistance-based exercises to help improve her capacity around her back and her hips to help her do the thing that she couldn't do, which was the main thing she wanted to get back, was picking her grandchildren up. So I reframed deadlifts right. as grandchildren oh. picker-uppers. That's amazing. Your deadlifts are, are, are now called grandchildren lifts. Yeah, that's it. Job done. And there was that that got the buy-in. She was like, she could understand now why she had to do this type of task because it replicated what she needed to be doing. That's so. That's that's exactly with our strength training for yoga book. We have this section where we show the relationship between a deadlift mm-hmm. and a halfway lift in yoga, and showing that these this strength exercise looks a hell of a lot like this yoga pose. It creates okay. that conceptual framework for oh, I see why that exercise it, we can why adding load to that exercise would help me get be, be feel more easeful in my yoga practice or in my day-to-day picking my grandchildren up so when you call it like deadlift that sounds scary i'm gonna hurt myself mm-hmm. there are connotations there's dead in the name right yeah. <laughs> which isn't what that's not why it's called that it's called that because you're picking up a stationary object that's a right. dead weight but, a dead uh, weight yeah yeah. So people have different conceptions. And so you, like you said, if you can educate people, the science shows that this is no more dangerous than the other things that you maybe already do or mm-hmm. think of as generally safe running yoga, whatever else, and certainly much less risky than uh, some of these contact sports, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's strange, I think, how some of these names in resistance-based strengthening exercises do have horrendous sort of internal images and perceptions. You know, they do like to give them these big, scary names, which again puts people off. Skull crushers, yeah. (laughs) You know the the variation of the Nordic called a razor curl? Yeah. So instead of going all the way out, you 
you kind of hinge at the hips and, and go out and then I don't know why they call it a razor car, but that's kind of a scary name. It does. Yeah, just, it it does. also is a scary exercise just because it's so hard. Uh, maybe that's why they call it that. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't give you sort of that willingness to think I'm going to rush in and try these skull crushers and razor curls. Yeah, yeah. Hey, quick question for you: Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. It's making me think about how, so I'm a yoga teacher and not uh, a physio or a therapy professional at all, but I've tuned in quite a bit to the physiotherapy culture. And I think that I kind of came into like learning from like people like you and these other evidence-based physios and physical therapists. And I got this impression that all physical therapists uh, are really into strength and prescribing strength training to their client. Like I just thought, because I think all the what people I was tuning into do. Because that happens uh, the loudest, so... That, that must be what's going on. And, and, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. I just didn't realize. And I remember I went to the seminar with Scott Morrison. That was for all, it was all PTs. And I like got special permission to go. And I was really intimidated to go because I was like just this yoga teacher in this room full of PTs. And I, I just felt like they'd be so much more knowledgeable than I would or than I was. And then he had us do like this breakout exercise with a partner exercise. And we were supposed to teach each other a single leg deadlift. And the the PT who I was partnered with, we, I was like, okay, let's teach the single leg deadlift. And he he asked, what's a single leg deadlift? Like he didn't know. And for me in that moment, I was just like, that actually makes me feel a little more knowledgeable and I'm not a PT. But anyway, it was just like a moment of realizing that I guess strength is not like a widespread value or a widespread prescribed um, intervention among physical therapists, even, even though it's so great. No, Jenny, you're right there. It's something that I have been over the last 20 years of my physio career trying to improve and turn around and hence why I'm quite loud and noisy about it and that's probably why you did get that perception that physios are all into strength but no the vast majority of physios are not actually taught about resistance or exercise prescription very well at all you know it's all about you know manual therapy pain modulation and all these types of treatments for pain rather than looking at exercises and when they do get taught exercises they get taught the more motor control type paradigm of exercises about the need to do exercises very specifically about the need to do them in specific ways to activate specific muscles Uh, and I find again that paradigm doesn't tend to help people much I tend to find there are uh, issues with that sort of motor control rehabilitation type approach because it it over complicates things totally unnecessary I think some of the explanations around it can be quite fear inducing and worrying for people Uh, and I sometimes find it actually creates more barriers to engagement with the exercises rather than actually what it should be doing which is encouraging people to move more they have to focus you know on doing it exactly the right way if they don't do it exactly the right way there's no point in doing it at all and I just think that's that's nonsense and again it's just I don't blame physios too much for doing it because it's what they get taught but I'm hoping that we're slowly Mm -hmm. beginning to realize is that these these exercises that we believe 
are doing things like, you know, keeping things in alignment and they're getting the sequencing of the muscles to work in the proper way and the proper organization is, is probably unlikely the reason why they help people. You know, I still like these lower intensity based motor control exercises without these narratives around it because they are just lower intensity exercises. Once you strip away all the confusion and the complexity and the harmful narratives around them, they're great exercises. They're nice, simple entry, low intensity movements. You just got to take away all the rubbish around it that can actually create more problems rather than assistance for people. So, yeah, I find physio is very much still trying to shift away from that motor control based exercise paradigm towards the more simple strength and conditioning world. It's getting there. It's slow. But I will also say, again, I'm, I'm quite open and honest and say there's a lot of complexity and over unnecessary explanations around strength and conditioning as well. And, you know, you see the strength and conditioning community beginning to realize that. You know, it doesn't matter so much about, you know, your set parameters, your periodizations, uh, your techniques Uh, as well. You know, all these all these things are beginning to be seen to be superfluous and probably not as important as we were thinking when it comes to helping improve people's performance and their strength. That's so interesting. So even maybe in the strength and conditioning world, there can be a tendency toward things need to be done in a super specific way that Absolutely. are uh, better than other 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 methods. And it sounds like it, it might just kind of come down to being a little more simple than that. Like you say, like the title of your shoulder course is complex doesn't mean complicated. Like it can be it can be a simple approach to still initiate complex processes within the body. But maybe we don't need to be so specific. So I feel like we've we've um, we've done a good job of kind of establishing how valuable we all think strength is, uh, but I'm just wondering a little bit about if maybe we because we're all I know all three of us are are skeptical thinkers who like to question biases, and I'm just wondering if we could talk a bit about some limitations as far as strength. And I know that's a little bit of a complex question because. I mean, if we're that could be strength in terms of rehab, like helping someone um, in pain, it could be strength in terms of preventing pain. Uh, there are just you know different parameters that we could talk go go um, to with that. But but in general, I guess I'll be more specific. So like within rehab, within what you do as a physio, where could strength have limitations? Well, the biggest limitation is pain, really. Um, so whenever you're using or seeing somebody in pain. You've got to recognize their ability to produce force and, and to be strong is inhibited. It's going to be affected by their perceptions and sensations of pain. Uh, and so I do think that, you know, using strength and conditioning principles in these environments with people with pain is a limitation. So trying to get people strong with pain, I don't think can be done the same way as trying to get people strong to help improve their performance. So, you know, rehabbing somebody with six months mm-hmm. of non-specific low back pain using resistance-based exercises is going to be completely different than the parameters you'd be using to help rehab someone six months after a, an ACL reconstruction. Because that ACL reconstruction after their surgery now hasn't got any pain. They've recovered from their operation. You're looking to build their performance up to get them back into being able to run around a football pitch, jump, turn, cut, twist, etc. Whereas somebody with six months of non-specific back pain has still got back pain, has still got probably other associated fears and anxieties around the pain as well. So we're going to still use resistance-based exercises there, but they're going to be looking completely different than we would do when we're dealing with somebody with that ACL. So again, I think, you know, as much as I am a fan of using strength and conditioning principles in physiotherapy, when you're using pain, 
Uh, you're seeing somebody with pain, you have to take that into consideration. And so this dosing of intensity now becomes very challenging. Uh, and the thing I like to do is whenever you are trying mm -hmm. to dose exercises with pain, and I keep it very simple, I call it a rule of 10. And the rule of 10 simply implies that when you're adding up somebody's intensity of an exercise plus their pain scores, if they're roughly around 10, you're not going to go too far off mark. And basically, it means that when somebody has high levels of pain, and we normally use that scale of 1 to 10, when somebody has pain at 7 or 8 on the pain score, that only leaves you one or two points on their exercise intensity score to keep to that rule of 10. So simply put, high intensity pain, low intensity exercises. And then if you take that down to the other end of the spectrum, somebody comes in with very low intensity of pain, so they're rating their pain about one or two out of 10, that now gives you up to eight or nine on their exercise intensity score to play around with. And I normally finally say, if you follow that rule of 10, it means that you're probably not going to be pushing somebody too hard, too quickly in those painful situations, keeping those exercises at a sufficient intensity that will hopefully create some positive adaptations. That is such a great and um, simple formula that like anybody can use. I feel like you're really good at offering um, really simple ways for people to think about this, but I love that kind of adding up to 10. The rule of 10, it does work well. And it's not rocket science. Yeah, not rocket science. <laughs> right, it doesn't have to be, but it seems like sometimes we all get a little attached to things, like wanting it to be like rocket science, it's, but it doesn't have to be. So when you're trying to keep the uh, intensity on the, the lower end of that because pain is on board, are you shifting more towards, so it, it sounds like on the continuum of resistance training to strength training, it's more towards the side of resistance training. Uh, are there other sorts of interventions? You mentioned motor control, or maybe just the one that comes to mind is, well, we can walk, right? Uh, like maybe that's the prescription in that moment because that's uh, not too strenuous for the person. They're able to do it even with the pain. Like what, how does the the focus change? when there is a lot of pain initially. So another simple saying I have, I have lots of simple sayings, but another one I say is the best rehab exercise is the one that's getting done. So, you know, when it comes to choosing, yeah, totally. you know, what's the best thing to be done, I, I, I need to make sure that the person is able to do it. So again, there's other barriers to rehab exercises in pain is that sometimes people just don't want to do it because they don't see any meaning in it. They don't enjoy doing it. They don't see any sort of value in doing it. They haven't got the equipment to do it. They haven't got the time to do it as well. So all these variables also have to be taken into consideration. So there's no point in working out a kick-ass strength and conditioning program that's got all these parameters <laughs> and it requires all this equipment when somebody goes back home and they've got no access to that at all. And, you know, they're coming from a low economical background. They can't afford gym memberships and all these sort of things. So then we're going to have to think about other ways and means of, of trying to get people to do something else instead. So, yeah, we have to take into consideration the individual and their preferences and their situations and their environments into consideration about which type of exercises we do. So, you know, low intensity exercises can be, you know, with lots of fancy equipment and you can have your Pilates bloody reformer tables and all those sort of things. You know, you can do low intensity exercises on that if somebody values yoga, it. Yoga, I guess, really is that too? Yeah, and, yeah, and yoga, you know, and all the all the other sort of stuff, you know, if, if people really attach to that and they really enjoy doing it and they've got the equipment, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd utilize that to my advantage. 
But then they also got to consider there's other people who don't enjoy those sort of things. They've got no access to these equipments and we're going to have to find something, a much more simpler approach, which, you know, as you said, Travis, walking is a nice option there. Simple floor-based exercises or something along those lines can fit quite nicely into those situations. But again, you've got to try and give it meaning to the patients as well. And again, I do find a lot of the time if we're just giving out rehab exercises without explaining the meaning behind it or attaching it to a meaning, um, they often don't tend to get done because people don't understand why or can't see why they need to do them. So I always like to try and find the hook as well, you know, is, is, is find out what the mm-hmm. patient's real desire and goal and motivation is, what's the one thing they want to do, and then try and fit the rehab around that. And as you say, trying to make the exercises look like the task they want to do. And I find that can be, again, a nice hook for somebody to understand, okay, that that's going to keep me motivated. I've got a mo- We talk about motivation quite a lot. Motivation can be quite short-lasting unless it's attached to something meaningful. So, again, if you've tried, I'm sure you have, you know, to engage in a fitness program or lose a bit of weight, you know, our motivation starts off very high at the beginning unless we've got actually something that we're attaching a meaning to it that motivation doesn't last long so true so we've got to try and keep people going there yeah the the kind of way that you could conceptualize that is if you're you have some sort of weight loss goal or uh some sort of any even a performance oriented goal you could that's sort of like extrinsic you know it's outcome based it's kind of fleeting but if you can find something intrinsically that you enjoy that and you find meaning in that, it's probably more likely to bring you back day after day, week after week, um, even after that in original extrinsic motivator kind of waxes and wanes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. More sustainable that way. Absolutely. So you've defined strength for, strength for us as force production and like... And that that's kind of made up of multiple mechanisms that can influence that. We we know that strength uh, strength type exercises in general can be helpful for pain in a rehab context, in the right context, as we've kind of outlined. Uh, but when strength is helpful, is it necessarily helpful specifically because it increases force, the ability to produce force? Can there also be other factors going on? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Hopefully you've been getting a sense for how smart and evidence-based Adam is in his approach to the human body and movement. Travis and I try to instill these same principles into our work together, including in our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to support and empower yogis in building strength to support their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program. You can learn more and sign up on my website, jennyrawlings.com, and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode on the connection between strength and pain. Uh, but when strength is helpful, is it necessarily helpful specifically because it increases force, the ability to produce force? Can there also be other factors going on? Yeah, absolutely. So the mechanisms of why resistance-based or strength-based exercises help reduce the perceptions or sensations of pain is still not well understood. 
Uh, and that's because there are multiple reasons or factors that can right. be contributing to that perception of change. So there is no doubt that, you know, there can be physiological adaptations that can account for that. So, you know, muscle hypertrophy, tissue adaptation changes, neurophysiological uh, adaptations, etc. But there could also be psychological and cognitive explanations as well. So I do find that, you know, resistance-based exercises and strength-based exercises can help improve people's perceptions of robustness and resilience, and it can help reduce fears and anxieties, mm -hmm. uh, and that can actually be a mediator of helping them feel better and less pain. So sometimes, you know, some of these resistance-based exercises where we think we're creating physiological adaptations to help people with their problems may actually just be confronting their fears and their expectations and challenging those and changing those at a, you know, psychological level. And that is then changing their perceptions of pain because pain is a bloody weird phenomenon. You know, pain is, is influenced and, uh, right. and, and factored by so many different variables. So trying to work out or tease out, you know, when we give an exercise or resistance-based, strengthening-based exercises to somebody who's got a problem, who's got a disability, who's got pain, and we see it helping them, you know, trying to tease out how that's helped them, it, that's, that is a very challenging question to, to answer definitively. You know, and it's quite challenging to me because, you know, based on my old school thinking, when I had it a few years ago, I was very much focused on the physiological adaptation. So I very much had that belief that that's what we were doing. But I've realized and read a bit more around it now and realized it just isn't that simple. So with that in mind, are there such, I guess it kind of ties back to what we said earlier, resistance based exercise versus strength strength or strengthening exercises there might be situations where you you look at it and say i think it's going to be enough just to do some resistance exercise without expecting this person's strength to increase over the duration of the rehab program um, and maybe other times you say well this person i think they maybe maybe there was a, a mechanism of injury that kind of showed that their strength was actually a limiting factor here so Maybe we do actually want to make sure that in four mm -hmm. to six to eight weeks, they've actually truly gotten stronger so we can try to reduce the risk of that happening again. Like a, you know, hamstring strain, maybe that would be mm -hmm. a, a good example where we have some better evidence to suggest that strength here actually is a predisposing factor. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are times where deconditioning and trauma and, and injury absolutely, you know, will have an, a negative physiological effect on somebody's ability to reduce force. Absolutely. And so, you know, using our exercises to try and rectify that. Yeah, absolutely. But then there's times where their pain and their other issues are probably not affecting their physiology and it's in its other things you know it's pain inhibition you know that's that's preventing them from producing force and that pain inhibition is because they're fearful or scared or doing something and they don't want to do it or they're unwilling to do it and therefore we're challenging those notions and those expectations and that sometimes is what helps people feel stronger yeah so kind of on the flip side of of this topic, so we know strength is complex. I There's a narrative out there that I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, Adam, but this idea that when people have weak muscles or just when they're weak in general, that that can be a reason that they have pain or that can be a risk factor for pain, like weak muscles can cause pain. Do you think it's as simple as that? 
if you were probably have talked to me about five years or so ago, I'd have probably said yes. But again, you know, through my process of evolution, <laughs> I'm beginning to realize it's not that simple. Um, so yeah, being weak is not um, a sole factor for any pain or pathology um, because all pains and pathologies are multifactorial. Uh, and so, you know, we can't just use reductionist thinking and blame one sole factor mm-hmm. for that. And, and you know, and that goes for anything else. I hear the term, oh, it's just because you're old. Your, your age, that's why you've got these <laughs> pains. That's why you've got that problem. I'm like, well, again, it, it, it's not that simple because there's people at the same age, if not older, that don't have these aches and pains that you have. So, totally. again, just this, yeah, this reductionist thinking around why people have pain and discomfort has to change. We have to look at it as a multifactorial phenomenon. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, weakness or, or lack or deconditioning doesn't have any role to play in people's problems because I do think it does. Uh, and we are in a world that is decreasing mm-hmm. in its activity levels. We are in a world that is becoming more sedentary. Uh, and as a consequence of that, we are seeing increasing rates of problems and pathologies because of that. Uh, and we know we've got pretty good, robust evidence out there to show that sarcopenia, which is basically a muscle mass loss, is is a key driver of many other pathologies and many other disabilities that are associated with pain. So, you know, although we can't blame pain, uh, weakness in isolation for pain, we can say that if you lose muscle mass, you have sarcopenia, it increases your risks of having more pathologies and conditions that are often associated with pain and disability. So it's a little bit of a circular sort of reasoning to get there, but there is, again, some quite robust evidence that does show that, you know, this sedentariness, lack of engagement with resistance-based physical activity does lead us to have increased risk of having pathologies and pains, absolutely. But it's not just that simple. That's such a great big picture answer. And uh, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is that sarcopenia or that loss of muscle mass, especially as people get older, is often correlated with loss of bone density or mm-hmm. osteopenia or osteoporosis. Like they kind of, I think there's even a term I can't remember right now, but it's a term that combines those two because they so often occur together. And so it just makes sense that strength training would directly combat that, not only on the muscle level, but also the bone, the bone health level. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here, as I say, is, is these things are obviously out, um, secondary side effects of deconditioning, of lack of movement, lack of activity often, mm-hmm. or some other disease-related condition that can be affecting the, the pathways for muscle synthesis and bone synthesis as well. But yeah, I do think, you know, we see, you know, not just people, people normally when you have sarcopenia, there are other associated issues around it as well, yeah. So the the one the one that we hear the most often from that I hear a lot of times with people coming to me, you know, they're they're finishing up rehab for for back pain and or they they've had it historically and they say, "Oh yeah, the the physio told me it was cuz I had a weak core." And so they they come to me and they're they're wanting to strengthen the core like that's their primary focus. And I guess the my my question for you is like when I'm sure you you've encountered that before people coming from other providers how do you address that narrative and also is is it not to say that core strengthening couldn't help um you know is that part of the program or how, you know how do you tackle that so again it depends on what the understanding 
is around why they need to do these particular exercises. If there's negative beliefs and there's negative understanding and there's misinformation, then yes, I'm discussing it and I'm correcting it. But if there is, you know, understanding that it is part of the picture and it's not the only factor, then I'm quite happy for them to think that they need to do these core exercises to to help their their, their problems. So you know, I, I it's it, it's not that I would challenge or. It, explain to everybody that I see that these core exercises aren't going to help or they won't help. It's about understanding the individual and what they understand by why they're doing them and what the possibility is of them helping or not. But yeah, there's a lot of, I think when say there's this reductionist approach to exercise a lot of the time when we're helping people with pain and pathology, we, we, we say to people that this is going to help because of this. And it's normally just one thing. Right. It's normally because we're going to stabilize right. your spine or we're going to, you know, improve your muscle mass. And that's just one factor out of probably another 23 or even probably 223 <laughs> different other reasons as to why these exercises could also help somebody feel better. It's not just about an improvement in their muscle mass. It could be due to the changes in their metabolic pathways. It could be due to mm -hmm. their blood marker changes their chronic low-grade inflammatory factors improving because we see that occurring with resistance-based exercises it could be due to their changes in perceptions of fragility it could be improving their confidence you know it could be improving their sleep quality as well you know all these other variables that this exercise could be helping somebody feel better it's not just based on one thing in isolation and trying to get that message across isn't easy the funny thing too is, uh, like with back pain, for example, they say, "Oh, well, you're 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 having back pain because your core is weak." But then there's this other uh, paradigm called regional interdependence that says, "Oh, well, we need so if the back pain is the the weak core, then we're going to train the spine or or the core, or the torso, or whatever you know that localized area." But then there's this other school of thought that says, "Well, it's not it's never the site of the pain that's the problem; it's the above and below." you know, the joint, the neighboring joints, or, or maybe even very distal far away joints, you know, your, your big toe is the cause of your neck pain. Um, and it's not so like regional interdependence. It's fine. It's, it's, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like you shouldn't address other body parts, but it's, it's kind of funny when we think about, oh, you know, you need to um, mobilize your hip because you're having instability of the spine and that's causing your back pain. Uh, or we need to uh, uh, free up your upper back so that your lower back doesn't have to move as much. And it's like, mm -hmm. the, it's, it goes back to what you said, like these nitty gritty explanations of uh, why these phenomena are occurring when there's, like you said, 223 other potential explanations. Yep. A good friend of mine, Eric Mira, says there's always an alternative hypothesis. So whatever hypothesis you have as to why something is helping, there's always alternative hypotheses. And your, your role as a critical thing. You can think about a, that. Oh, sorry. No, you're right. You could think about that in anything, in everything that we do, that we encounter. There's always other reasons as to why, you know, I'm having a bad day today. I thought it was because I got out on the left-hand side of the bed instead of the right-hand side of the bed. But there's also <laughs> other factors that why you're having a bad day as well. So, yeah, there's always alternative hypotheses, Travis. And that interregional interdependence or whatever it is term that's used a lot in rehabilitation, some people take that to the nth degree. They really stretch the plausibility of that. Uh, and the reason behind that is because I think people think complexity is better received. I think there is still this problem where over complexity sometimes gives this impression that we are more skilled and we 
we know things better and we're we're better trained at diagnosis and and I think patients for, you know fall for that but I also think they buy into that as well and I, and I find that a bit depressing and a bit sad in this day and age is that we just don't appreciate the simple things in life anymore everybody wants you know to look at things in way too overcomplicated ways and yeah and it, it's not saying that these potential hypotheses are not true they could be true but what, what about the other simpler hypotheses that are you know more likely you know and again right. i use that old occam's razor that says you know occam's if you can razor. try and keep yeah, yeah keep keep it simple it's more likely to be the possible reason as to why things are, are improving or not as the case may be that is such a great insight and not to get us too off track but i feel like i noticed that same tendency in the yoga world like with yoga mm. teachers leading students through movement or asanas, there's a tendency to, to get very overly com complicated in like exactly how people should position and, you know, like align the base of your middle finger one degree left and then suddenly the magic happens or you'll prevent injury. There's the, all the, that rationale too. So it's just, I think getting placed on yoga teachers, this idea that, that, yeah, we need to know a lot and be super complicated in how we're teaching the movement in order for it to be optimal but i just feel like just like you said we can be so much more simple in how we guide movement and as yoga teachers we can excel in these other other uh parts aspects of our role as a yoga teacher it's like such a big picture it's not just about this one thing no you're right there jenny and it's a it's it, it's it's easy to say but i do find it's quite hard to do because us humans we all have our little um biases yeah. and we have our little behavioral habits that can be hard to override and, and and trying to explain and do things simplistically in this day and age I do find very challenging even for me who's a fan of it it can feel awkward it can feel uncomfortable and it, it, it sometimes does give others the impression that you are dumbing things down and that you are stupid and that you're ignorant mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so it, it takes a bit of practice it takes a bit of skill to be able to do things simply well and to be able to explain things simply well um you know but yeah That's it's so it's something that i think that us humans we just we tend to get that over complexity to hide our our inadequacies our inferiorities rather than just being happy and comfortable in a, in the simple explanations about things yeah absolutely uh we've covered a little bit about the top this idea of weak muscles being like a single factor for causing pain and kind mm -hmm. of countered that idea. Uh, another common narrative that I hear out there is that tight muscles, and we know that tight is this like vague term without a, a clear scientific definition anyway, but when people say, my X part of my body part feels tight, uh, a common response seems to be, well, it's tight because it's weak, so you need to strengthen it. And I feel like for some reason, I hear this refer to, to the hip flexors a lot, but I also hear it all, all over the body. What do you think about that tight and strength? Yeah, again, stiffness is a perception, um, just like weakness is a perception. And whenever we're dealing with bodily perceptions, we have to recognize they are poorly correlated to actual structural factors. So although, you know, we can feel weak in places doesn't mean that actually that muscle is weak. And it's the same with stiffness, just because we feel stiff in an area doesn't actually mean we've got a structural adaptation or change to the tissue that is stiff. So stiffness can be driven by many, 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 many things, just like weakness can and pain can be um, so again trying to isolate or determine why somebody has some restrictions or is feeling stiff it's very challenging to do and you know yes potentially fatigue is a factor fear is a factor muscle force output could potentially be a factor but it isn't to say that they are definitively the only factors 
Um, but you know, I do see this this more of a anti stretch movement occurring a lot recently. Which again, I'm not the biggest fan of stretching. If I'm being honest, I don't personally enjoy it. I find it mm-hmm. a little bit boring and dull. But I know there's people out there that absolutely love to stretch. You know, they put themselves in positions and they hold it there for 25 minutes and they love it. They love those sensations and those feelings of stretching. And, you know, that's that's great. I think, you know, they're moving, they're placing their tissues under some tension. And, you know, who's to say that that's the wrong thing to do? Who's to say that's bad? I'm certainly not going to say that's bad. It's just another way of, of movement. And, you know, it's better than just sitting sedentary on the couch. So, you know, stretching, I think this anti-stretching paradigm that a lot of people are saying that it's useless, it's a waste of time, I I don't agree with it. I think there are other ways of dealing with stiffness than just stretching alone. Um, I don't think it's the only way to help somebody who's got a perception Mm -hmm. of stiffness. Um, And again, we do see, you know, in the research now that you see comparable effects in sensations of stiffness and improvements in mobility with resistance-based exercises as we do with static stretching. So it's not that one is better than the other. They're just two options that you could use. And I think, you know, which one you decide to use is very much based on the person in front of you. So if I'm dealing with a a dancer who feels stiff and wants to improve that sensation of stiffness, yeah, stretching might be the preferred option for them to do. And who's to say that's a bad thing? Not me. Um, but if they've been stretching for six months and those perceptions of stiffness hasn't changed, the definition of madness is carrying on doing the same thing and expecting a different result. <laughs> so if they've if they've been doing that for six months and that stiffness is still there and it's a chronic stiffness and they've stretched and stretched and stretched, now I'm going to say to them, well, okay, I know you really like stretching, you value stretching, but it doesn't seem to have made much of a difference. How about we try and find a different approach and a different strategy? which is a challenging conversation to have with dancers, you know, trying to get them to to think, to move away from stretching, which they think is the answer to their stiff problems and focus on other things such as resistance-based exercises mm-hmm. is tricky to do. But this is where, again, we need the good communication skills. We need good therapeutic alliance with people that we see for them to, you know, try things that are a little bit different. So I think, you know, it's about, It's about having options when it comes to stiffness. It's about playing around with various different approaches. And as I say, if something Mm. doesn't feel like it's working, then change tact. But stretching does change people's perceptions of stiffness quite a lot. And if it works and it's positive, crack on, carry on. No problem with that at all. Travis, did you have a question you were going to ask? I was just going to say if the the dancer has been stretching for the last 18 years, and yeah. they're coming to you with a, a pain complaint, like maybe try something else. But, you know, it's the, the okay, we try the first thing. If the first thing doesn't work, then we try the other thing. <laughs> uh, it's right. not, it, there's not, never going to be one size fits all that works for everybody. And that's the key. It's, 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 it's patient-centered, person-centered care. That's, that's the thing that we are moving more towards now in healthcare, which finally great it's good to hear you know moving away from recipes and protocols and and lumping people into groups you know it's 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 about focusing on the person it's yes being aware that you know you've got all these different options you could use but trying to fit that to the person in front of you based on all these other variables that we've discussed already that's that's the way to manage people with pains and problems it's not just giving everybody a sheet of exercises and saying, this is what you need to do for this particular condition. That shit just doesn't work. 
The one, the one other uh, thing that we hear a lot, both in, I mean, in, in all corners of the rehab and fitness and yoga worlds is this idea that your muscle imbalance is what's causing mm. your pain. And then the, uh, the recipe for that is correcting the muscle imbalance, you know, doing more pulling exercise than pushing exercises. It's going to change your, it's going to correct the muscle imbalance. It's going to fix your posture. And it's, you know, the, the, the recommendation of strengthening or resistance exercise for that, I think we're all on board with, but again, it's that narrative, right? Mm -hmm. It goes back to, it's, it's the same as the weak muscle. Now it's just comparing the weak muscle to something else. And but yeah. they're probably not actually measuring anything. They're probably just saying, well, your shoulders are like this. Therefore you must be weak in the upper back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, that's sort of, you're too strong here. You're too weak there. You know, upper cross syndromes, lower cross syndromes, you know, that have been around since mm-hmm. Yanda promoted them back in the nineties and the eighties, you know, mm-hmm. all these paradigms have, have been seen, you know, not to really hold up as explanations as to why people have pain and pathology. You know, we see posture is poorly correlated to problems and pain. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't get positive effects by changing somebody's posture, which is sometimes misinterpreted, but that doesn't mean their posture is a causal factor. You know, I sometimes see people in positions and mm-hmm. postures they adopt when they're in pain because of the pain. It doesn't mean that that was the cause of their pain. Right. Um, but yeah, and again, you know, this this approach of muscle imbalances, push-pull ratios is often something I have a discussion with people all mm-hmm. the time. They say to me, what's the optimal push-pull ratio? And the first question I ask is, which way are you pushing and pulling? And they look at me like I'm cross-eyed. They're like, what do you mean? And I say, well, are we talking push-pulling above, over, uh, vertical or horizontal? There's your first question there. Oh, I haven't thought about that. Well, there you go. That's the first thing to think about. Uh, and again, lots of people say, oh, for every pushing exercise, you've got to do two pulling exercises to correct these postural asymmetries. I'm like, mm-hmm. show me any evidence that shows that as a beneficial effect for anything and, and on anybody because I haven't seen it. <laughs> so yeah, I hear these terms used a lot, this bro science, you know, gym talk all the time and again it's it is just talk there's there's no data or supporting evidence that it's actually needed or essential for muscle imbalances yeah don't even get me started on gluteal amnesia either it's just like if a person has come in and all they've ever done is bench press and curls like yeah we could spend some time doing some rows like that would be okay Mm -hmm. um but if you've do if you're doing a balanced program where you have roughly the same amount of pushing and pulling and you've been doing that for a while, like you don't suddenly need to read, oh, well, a three to one ratio is the magic ratio for this. And now I need to, and like the amount to think about what a program would look like, we are actually doing, you know, if you have 10 sets of pushing, you're doing 30 sets of pulling. Like it's so silly that people yeah. just put this number out there. And I see, I see people asking you and others all the time about that. And it's just like somebody just made that number up Mm-hmm. And they were shouting it louder than everybody else. And now everybody buys it. Absolutely. You know, I sometimes put it into perspective with other situations as well. Because when people say, oh, are you going to develop muscle imbalances if you just do bench press and you don't do enough rows to counteract it? I'm saying, well, do, do you go jogging? Do you go running? They go, yeah, yeah. So, so, so which direction do you run in? Well, I run <laughs> forward. Okay. Uh, are you going to get postural muscle imbalances because you only run forward and you don't do the same amount of backwards running now? And you see their face go, "Mm, no, because that's stupid. I'm like, well, it's the same principle you're applying to pushing and pulling ratios. Sure, you know, if you're saying, you know, you've got to counteract this, 
surely if you're going to go running in one direction, you've got to counteract it in the other direction, haven't you? And I know there was a little bit of talk Careful about what that. Careful what you say, though, because then you get people... I know. I was going to say, now, now I'm hearing people backwards, running backwards, walking backwards, sled pulling. Not to say that I those aren't seen bad, it. but... I have uh, seen it. Yeah, yeah. Not doesn't need to be a one to one, right? And I like no. it's pretty obvious. So, but yeah. and humans are asymmetrical as well. We got to we got to celebrate asymmetry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Jenny. I was. I think we're just saying the same thing. Totally. There, we got to celebrate. We we're saying the same As, thing. Yeah. Yeah, celebrate asymmetries. Mm-hmm. Don't demonize it. You know, they say enjoy it that your body can do some things better on one side than the other because that's perfectly normal. We very rarely do things symmetrically. You know, we always tend to have that, you know, p- preferred hand that we go to reach for things or that leg that we trust more when we step up onto stuff. There's nothing to say that that's dangerous or harmful or bad. Not at all. Yeah. Is that an adaptive thing that we've picked up to facilitate our performance that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad or something that needs to be corrected. Yeah. I think it's just that little bit of extra complexity to make us appear say that little bit more um, sexy and a little bit more intelligent, totally unnecessarily. I think. Yeah. I know that we are about heading toward wrapping up this conversation. I was hoping I could just throw out one last question to you, Adam. Okay, cool. That uh, I've experienced that in the yoga world, there tends to be this assumption that because someone is a physiotherapist or a physical therapist, they are therefore an authority on the body and on pain. So there's kind of because they're in the yoga world, you know, there are a lot of people who are yoga teachers, but there are also yoga teachers who are also PTs. And they tend to be just because they have the PT after their name, everyone is just like they they know what they're talking about. I'm going to trust them. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe conclude. Our Adam has his us. hands on his face right now for <laughs> yeah, those of us who, who are listening to the video audio recording of this. That's what I was just about to say. If you're not seeing the visual of this, you're probably not seeing my facial expressions as Jenny's talking there. But no, Jenny, this this is often something that I see talked or or said or claimed a lot about about the hierarchical nature of the various different professions and your different training and it's it's absolute bollocks it's absolute nonsense so you know i i see people with all the bloody qualifications in all the world they've been on all the bloody courses they've done all the postural recorrection stuff they've done all the exercise physiology courses uh and and they're they're rubbish they're absolute crap they've got absolutely no idea of how to assess interact or 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 deal with things in any sensible way yeah i see people you know that are self-taught and have learned through reading and critical thinking they're absolute masters at it you know a name that jumps to Mm -hmm. mind is todd hargrove you know, Todd Hargrove oh, yeah. has had no, yeah, no formal training in any particular profession of the healthcare, but he understands pain he's a better than I think. Yeah, he's a lawyer by training, but he understands pain and he understands movement, I think, better than I do. He understands it better than I think probably 99% of all healthcare professionals uh, do out there. And he writes beautifully about it. So, you know, somebody like mm-hmm. him is, I would class as an authority on um pain and movement yet you know no formal qualifications not even a healthcare professional so you know it just goes to show that i think you know trying to rely on qualifications and uh, uh professional titles alone can sometimes cause problems now i don't want to come across as too disparaging to all of my colleagues 
uh, and start saying that there is no trust in any of the professions because I don't think mm -hmm. that's true because I do think, you know, there are, you know, people in my profession and in other therapies and in other healthcare professionals that are, are excellent. But when I see people claiming, you know, this is better than this, this profession is better than this, don't go to them because this is the group of people over here are better. I'm like, I see the good, the bad, the ugly across the board. So it's looking at the individual rather than their actual titles and qualifications, I think is is something to, to be focused on. Yeah, it's tricky, I think, uh, because as a lay person, you see the letters after somebody's name and it, it's mm. easy to kind of assume that they are an authority. And it's not to say that physiotherapy education isn't amazing and isn't several years of really good foundational education on the body. Um, but sometimes it can be outdated or the person can be having practiced for many, many years and not continued to learn beyond what they learned in their training. And so that's, that's probably the biggest challenge, but then as the lay person, how you identify that person ahead of time, or like you, you go and do a session with them and like, how are you supposed to know that they're 20 years behind yeah. the times? Yeah, yeah it, is, it is challenging for people that as they are, you know, searching for somebody to help them out and they are relying on obviously CVs and letters behind the name to know again who is good to go and see. And that's where I think sometimes word of mouth and personal recommendations are, are probably to be trusted in some situations more than others. Um, but again, you know, when it comes to that sort of uh, approach with regards to, you know, trying to find that balance between, you know, education and experience. I have a saying, again, another saying for you, you know, some people have 10 years experience. Some people have one year's experience for the last 10 years. And I'd much prefer to have somebody who's got one year's experience, you know, than they're changing it and they're updating it every year. And they've got 10 years of doing that rather than somebody that says, I've got 10 years of experience. Yeah, but if you've stopped updating your experience when you qualified, then it doesn't yeah, matter. you're probably out of date. Yeah, that is a great distinction. Thanks for thanks for highlighting that. So just how in whatever year someone did their education, just that it seems like what's important is to continue to evolve and stay current with the Constant. research and to adapt as times change. Yeah, maybe that's that's probably a good message to uh, leave our listeners with and wrap this conversation up. But uh, Adam, we are so thankful that you took the time to join us and talk to us and have this conversation for the benefit of of our community. You shared so many great insights with us. Could you tell our listeners like where, where you think the best, the best way for people to learn from you and connect with you and follow you? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll just say thanks for inviting me on again, Jenny and Travis. And uh, I'm fans of what you guys and girls are doing out there as well in the yoga community. So please keep on doing that as well. So kudos to you for trying to enhance and improve things there so well done keep it going um as for trying to follow me or get in contact with me if anybody wants to i'm on most of the social medias so you can uh, come and find me there under adam meekins i'm even on tiktok now as well although i'm not doing any of that bloody dancing you stuff because i'm not into that i'm on t i'm not using it i haven't got to grips with it yet because it's all about doing dances and uh, that's one thing I haven't got. I've got a bit of strength, but I haven't got coordination. <laughs> but yeah, if you just if you just find me on Twitter is the is the social media platform I, I use the most. Uh, but I'm on there under Adam Meekins. I've got my website, the Sports Physio, as well, so you can go and check that out if you want to. And I've got some of the, my schedules and my courses and stuff on there, and my blogs as well if you want to read those. But thanks very much for your time.
Yeah, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So you could, yeah, any listeners can go there to find Adam. You're also great on you have Instagram. A, a podcast as well. Oh, yeah, well. and you have a podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. I forgot to mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention, <laughs> and Ben will kill me for this because I haven't mentioned that as well. I keep forgetting. Oh, yeah. So me, Better Clinician me Project. The Better Clinician <laughs> Project. Me and Ben Cormack have set up an online education uh, community. Uh, it's a subscription service, so we're earning a bit of money out of it. But it's uh, it's very low cost. It's twelve pound a month, uh, which I'm not quite sure what works out into dollars, but it's probably probably less than fifteen dollars a month, I think. Um, but it's mm-hmm. uh, it's just a, an online education platform where me and my colleague Ben Cormack promote uh, evidence based, simple, clear ways and means of looking at various different pathologies and pains and ways of doing rehab. So you get three pieces of information every week, uh, say for a small subscription, no contracts, no commitments. You can drop in or out as much as you like, but please come and check out the better clinician project and my podcast with my good friend, Greg Lehman as well is a monthly podcast we do called the NAF podcast as well. Thanks for reminding me, Travis. I'm terrible at this stuff. Yes. And Greg was actually a a guest on one of our previous episodes. So our, our listeners know him. Um, yeah, so talking about stretching. Imagine what a uh, thrilling listen that is with the two of you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Listen to the nap, yeah. I just tend to throw out obscenities. Yeah, you do. You guys always well, that, that makes it what That's what part of makes it so fun. Exactly. Thank you so much, Adam. We so appreciated having you today. Thanks again for the invite, Jenny and Travis. All the best. And that wraps up our look at the connection between strength and pain with Adam Meekins. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga program. And the link to that is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you enjoyed this discussion, we would so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. 